Friends, when was the last time that you forgave someone? When was the last time that you forgave someone? And think about it, just consider maybe even over the last year. When was the last time you forgave someone? It truly forgave another person who had wronged you or sinned against you, hurt you. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe a child. Children for you, maybe it was a parent or a brother or sister. Maybe it was your neighbor or a coworker who works alongside you, a boss. When was the last time you truly forgave someone? And now consider this. When was the last time that you were forgiven? When was the last time that you did someone wrong? You you spoke harshly or you were dishonest. You failed to keep your word. You broke something valuable. And instead of getting what you deserve, the person showed you mercy and forgave you. You know, forgiveness is not something that's easy to come by these days. In fact, in a world that's bent on bringing up the past constantly, whether that be a long-running feud or a comment you made on social media ten years ago, we live in a culture where forgiveness is not easy to find. And people don't like to let things go. And do you realize that this is actually one of the things that sets Christianity apart from the other religions and other worldviews that we see. And we find that other religions, in order to reach moral perfection, you must do it in yourself. You must climb the ladder of being a good person, to being the kind of person who doesn't actually need forgiveness because they're faultless. Or just consider Buddhism. The goal of Buddhism, for example, is nirvana. That is, this enlightened state where the fires of greed and hatred and ignorance have been quenched, leading to eternal bliss. And how does one reach nirvana? Through meditation and good behavior until you've worked your way up the ladder. Or we might even consider the culture in which we live that rarely believes in a God of justice but feeds on perpetual guilt-tripping, that feeds on social condemnation, and that calls for an ongoing apology and submission to whatever is in style in that moment. And if you disagree, there's no forgiveness. What do these two things have in common? On the surface, it may seem like nothing, but in a phrase, there is no concept of true forgiveness. There is only the call of working, trying harder, doing more better. Until eventually you have reached a place where you have earned your acceptance. With yourself, with a God, or with the world around you. So it really does leave us with two options, doesn't it? The option of bearing the burden of your own guilt, of the neediness of yourself, the way of having all of this taken on upon you and working your way to getting into a good place? 
or the pathway of forgiveness. The pathway that we've been singing about all morning. The pathway that this word holds out as the only path to life. Being welcomed into a relationship with this God and all the blessings that come with it. Not because of what you've done. Not because of what you have earned. Not because of what you are capable of. But because of what He has done. Namely, what He has done in the death of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we find answered for us as we return to our series walking through the book of Hebrews this morning. You'll remember that this letter is is written to a group of Christians who have been struggling with this great temptation that are wrestling in some ways with this very question of what do we do now that the fires of persecution have come upon us. The the original hearers of the letter to the Hebrews were were Jewish Christians. They had grown up in, in a Jewish household, in the Jewish culture, but they had made this crazy radical decision to leave the faith of their fathers and to turn and follow this Messiah known as Jesus, the Christ from Nazareth. You could say it this way, that they left the types and shadows to follow the real deal. But, as many of us have even realized recently, following Jesus is not easy. For these Christians, following Jesus meant even greater hate and even greater persecution, not just from the world around them, but from their own family members who were steeped in the Jewish practices. So the temptation before them was this, to go back to the old ways, to go back to the old covenant where they would find some relief from the hate and the the, the solace from the persecution and rest from the war against their faith in Jesus. And all they had to do was deny Him and do the things that they had always done before, making sacrifices, namely. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It is a call to these Jewish Christians, a warning to not turn back to the old covenant, but to push forward to run hard, putting their trust and their faith and their very lives in the hands of the one who came to make a new and everlasting covenant, this man, Jesus. But to tell you simply, it's the name of our series that Jesus is better. If you want to see how that's laid out in the book, I would encourage you to go back and read the book of Hebrews up to where we're at now this, this week as you have time. And as you come to any questions, you can always refer back to those sermons that we've already looked at. But today we come to a pivotal point in the book of Hebrews. We come to to a turning point. We are just verses away from the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11 to the end of the book, turning to now make some applications. Some, here's how you should now live in light of what I've said. But before he gets there, in these 18 verses that we're going to look at today, he summarizes everything that he's already said, short and succinct. And so this is really a great place for us to start as we jump back into the book, especially for those of you who have not been here throughout this series. You're going to get a taste of what the entire first nine chapters are all about in the book of Hebrews. And so with that, let me invite you to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, that's okay. We have some there in the pew in front of you. Hebrews 10 is on page 946 there in the Pew Bible. If you're new to the Bible, when you get to page 946, just look for that big number 10. That's the chapter number. That's where I'll begin reading here in a moment. We're going to read the first 18 verses today. And as we jump into this passage, I'm going to take time to read the whole thing here at the beginning with you this morning. So let me go ahead and invite you to stand 
with me in honor of the reading of God's word as we consider how we find forgiveness. How we find forgiveness. This is the word of the Lord to us today from Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, not, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added... Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write, it, write them on their minds. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Be seated. Now, and I feel this way, every passage in the book of Hebrews, I hope you feel it too. There's a lot here. There's a lot here in, in, in these 18 verses, a lot that we could be explored. And I know we started at 10 a.m., but I don't want to keep you here till noon like you're used to. But I do want to just dive in and to begin to just work our way through this passage and see the goodness and the glory specifically of what Christ has accomplished in His death. And we break this, section, this, this, this passage up in, in four sections, and we've put them there in your bulletin for you so you have the points. But let me run through them right quick so you see where the breakdown happens. Point number one, you can't achieve forgiveness. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Then who can achieve forgiveness in 5 through 10? How is forgiveness achieved in 11 through 14? And the blessings of being forgiven there in those last few verses. And as we see these things in this text, my prayer for us today is that God would cause our hearts and our minds to delight, to find joy and satisfaction in who Jesus is. That God would cause us to flourish in our love and our trust of Jesus as we see how He has loved us. And that God would set us as a church and as individuals deep in the grace and mercy that comes to us from Jesus Christ alone. Amen. So let's trust the Lord to do this as we look at point number one, you can't achieve forgiveness. Now you may say, Pastor, that's a very harsh way to begin your sermon. You can't achieve forgiveness, but, but it's actually not. 
For one reason, it's because it's what the Bible says, but, but also it's exactly what, what we are trying to encapsulate here in, in being a church that's centered on Jesus and not on ourselves. This is what the author of Hebrews is aiming to teach these Christians there in those first four verses. Look back there. We see that, that he knows that this sacrificial system of killing goats and bulls and calves is at the very center of the Old Covenant, of, of the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. This, this concept of, of killing animals as sacrifices is central to, to, to who they were. It's central to their faith and, and their religion. And so he realizes that if he can show them how this system was never meant to bring forgiveness and salvation then he can collapse this whole Jewish house of cards and allow the everlasting kingdom of Jesus to be built in its place. And that's what the text does for us today as well. It helps us today to see that no amount of work on our part can achieve forgiveness, can achieve salvation, can make us right before a holy, perfect, and just living God of the universe. Let's look back at those first four verses and see how he draws this out. He does it by really highlighting three specific ways that the old covenant sacrifices were inadequate and incapable of doing what was needed. And for those of you who may be wondering, what, what are these sacrifices and what are they all about? Well, these verses, I think, will help you see that, these limitations. The first limitation is, is the limitation of purpose. We find that the old covenant sacrifices were limited in their purpose, why they were actually given. There in verse 1 we find out that they were never meant to provide salvation. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, he can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. That's the key phrase. It cannot make them perfect. It cannot redeem them. It cannot save them. So for the question for us then, if you're a discerning reader, is then why did God do it? Why did he give them these, these sacrifices? Why did he tell them to kill these animals year after year after year, day after day after day? And as we've seen throughout this book, we find that God's intention was not to give them a way to take care of their own sin, but to begin by showing them that they were sinners in the first place. Those, those old covenant sacrifices offered every year made clear to the people of that time that they were serving a holy, perfect, and pure God. And they were quite the opposite of holy, perfect, and pure. Knowing this, seeing this, believing this is not something that we should take for granted. And I don't want to take it for granted this morning here. And maybe some of you even here this morning think that you're doing pretty good that you're doing pretty good on your own and, and you showed up today for a pep talk to boost you and help you go on your way. You came to the wrong place. Here we find that the blood of those animals daily being slaughtered, that sin was ever before them because of it. Their sin was ever before them. That the bleeding of all of those dying lambs was crying out one eternal truth. Death after death after death for the wages of sin. This is why he writes that the law is but a shadow. The author of Hebrews uses the word law here to speak of the Old Covenant itself. What we find laid out specifically in the book of Leviticus, which we're going to begin looking at on Wednesday nights as a church. He says here that it foreshadows the good things to come, the true reality of the things to come. 
He's helping us understand that God's intention in calling them to sacrifice animal after animal under the old covenant was to draw their eyes not to the shadow, but to the substance of that shadow. He's asking them here, will you forsake the very sun in the sky for the shadow that it creates? Will you forsake Jesus for some animals? As Paul says in Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the first thing we see here is that the Old Covenant was never meant to provide salvation, but only give a sketch of the sacrifice that could. But as we continue to the end of verse 1, we find that this isn't the only limitation. There's also this limitation of repetition that takes place. This is brought up several times in this passage, but it's worth getting our feet wet here at the beginning to to kind of get into this idea of of repetition. Look back at the end of verse 1. It can never, by the same sacrifices that, here it is, are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. What's he saying then? That no matter how many shadows you pile on top of each other, the shadows will never create the thing that they are pointing to. That it doesn't matter how many shadows you bring in, it's not going to create the sun. It's not going to create the substance. Or to say it another way, a sacrifice that must constantly be done never really achieves forgiveness of sins in any real meaningful way. That's exactly the point. There is no peace. There was no assurance. There was no real salvation from sin if the work of ongoing sacrifice repeated over and over and over is actually what is needed. Let me think about it like this. If you had some sickness and you went to a doctor and the doctor said, yes, you have this sickness and therefore you must take this medicine for the rest of your life so that the sickness does not kill you. But you must take it every day. Every single day you must take the medicine and you must take it. You, must. you would look back and say, well, I have not been cured. The sheer fact that you have to take the medicine every day means that your sickness has not been taken care of. The disease has not been cured. And so in the same way, the repeated offering of these animals showed them that their sins were not really cured. Their disease had not really been taken care of. If they had been, they could have ceased to make the sacrifices. They could have stopped being offered and the barking conscience of of the sinner would have been silenced. I wonder if that's any of you today. That your conscience is at war within you. That you are in sin and you know it. And and you have spent all your time trying to atone in some sacrifice, by, by some good work, by some effort, and the barking of your guilty conscience will not cease in you. And you are not finding rest, but instead find yourself like these old covenant worshipers, without peace and assurance. Consider your options as we come then to that final limitation in seeing why we can't achieve our own forgiveness. It's a limitation of nature, what they actually were. Think about what those Old Covenant people experienced every year. We're beginning to get into this in our Bible reading plans as a church. But yearly, and instead of, of, of the cleansing of sin, as they brought their bulls and their goats and their calves to be killed, they're covered in blood. The priests are covered in blood. There's blood running out into the streets from the tabernacle, then offered up to God by the priest. 
Every year it opened the old wounds, reminding them of their guilt and their lack of forgiveness, showing them their great need. And the drama of it all communicated one thing. We don't have access. We don't have access. We can't go in. We can't go into the holy place of the tabernacle tent. We can't go into the holy of holies within that holy place. We can't be in God's presence before the covenant. There is still a veil before us. We have no access to God. The very nature of these sacrifices prevents us from actually being able to go unto God. Why? Because not all the blood of beasts could satisfy the demand of being in the presence of a holy, infinite, and glorious God. And friend, if that's true of those sacrifices, the same is true of our good works. If we think that we have access to a perfect, good, and holy God because of who we are and what we've done and how wonderful we are, then we are sorely mistaken. This shows us on the one hand the pure depths of our sin, that we are cut through and through by a sinful nature, by sinful attitudes, by a sinful heart and sinful emotions and sinful thoughts and sinful deeds. But on the other hand, it shows us the great need of a sacrifice of superior value. That they, just like we, need something more than we can provide in and of ourselves. Friend, I wonder if you're here today and maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Or, or maybe you, you would, but you've gotten it twisted in your mind and your heart that there is something that you can bring to your relationship with God that will force Him to forgive you for all the bad because all the good you've done outweighs it. Maybe you think, Pastor, I, I haven't killed any animals, but man, if you knew how much I've sacrificed for God and serving God, you would, you would not say that. You would say, you know, God loved you and He will accept you because, man, you've done so much. But friends, we find now, as we continue in our text, that God has not delighted Himself in our sacrifices that seek salvation but has always looked forward to one sacrifice that is of supreme value. And it's the only way to salvation and forgiveness that can be given to us. So let's answer now, who can achieve forgiveness? Who can achieve forgiveness? And as we come to this next section, maybe the best question to ask ourselves is, is why? If these sacrifices and, and these priests and these rituals were given by God Himself... In His Word, this is God's Word, the Old Testament is the Word of God, is the same God, He has not changed, and He gave them this sacrificial system laid out in the book of Leviticus, then we should ask ourselves, why? What kind of sick, twisted game is God playing then in giving them this? Why didn't Jesus come in Genesis 4, right after the fall, and make everything okay? What is going on? Why does He do this? And so the matter of faith is here for these Jewish Christians, but even for us today, as we are tempted to turn away from Christ, whether that be with our whole lives or, or in the face of temptation to, to lie or cheat or lust or grow frustrated, we have to fight the fight of faith just as they did. This is it right here. The nub is this. Is the work of Jesus Christ worthy to take away sin? Is He really the only one who can achieve forgiveness and bring us back into relationship with God? That is the question. That is not just the question of Hebrews. That is not just the question of the Bible. But that is the question 
that one and every of us will answer on the day we stand before God? That is the question that we present in our evangelism. That is the question we present in our missions. That is the question that we should present our neighbors, our coworkers, our spouses, our children. Is the sacrifice of Jesus enough? Because if it is, it changes everything. Not just about our faith, but our entire lives. It changes everything about who you are. So how does the author of Hebrews prove it here? Look back at verses 5 through 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Christ still speaking there, okay? Then I said, is Christ. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it, was, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Here we find that the sacrifice God really desired then The sacrifice God was looking for since the dawn of creation that brought Him infinite glory was the sacrifice of the Son. In name, it was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the question for the author of Hebrews is, how can he prove that to these Christians that are tempted to return to the Old Covenant? That's what he's aiming to do in this entire letter. He's trying to prove to them that Jesus is better. How can he do it? What could persuade them to to believe this and to continue running the race that is set before them? Well, here it is. He takes up their very book. It's the thing he's done over and over and over in this letter. As I'm reading through this, and so so Christ consequently says when he comes, many of you are thinking, well, we just thought about Christmas and Advent, and I don't remember the baby Jesus saying anything in the manger. What is it? What is he doing here? Why does he say that Jesus said this? Where do we find that? What what, what is this? And he's saying, no, you need to understand from your own book, from your own holy text, handed to you, and, and specifically here from Psalm 40, spoken by your prized king, David, we find it foretelling and foreshadowing what Jesus would do. Speaker says that at the end of the day, it's not sacrificing Animals that brings you to light, O God. But the faithful obedience of your covenant people, that is what you have desired, God. Obedience. We find here that the Son of God came. He stepped into the world. And he said, that is exactly what my life will declare. The author uses this text and applies it to the greater David, Jesus Christ, standing on the edge of heaven, as it were, waiting for the fullness of time when he would assume humanity in, in, in dialogue with God the Father here. He makes these his own words. Sacrifice of animals has never brought you pleasure. You gave them as a shadow. They were never your plan to deal with sin, but you have prepared a body for me, and in that body I will obediently accomplish your will by offering the sacrifice you have always desired, God. And by doing this, Hebrews shows us two ways that Jesus achieved forgiveness of sin. We see them laid out here. Don't miss them. First, he shows that Jesus is, is distinct, that he's different, that he's unique. That he is utterly special in every way. You might even say that he's divine. Just look at how he describes the incarnation itself. It's what we just celebrated during Advent. It says the Father prepared a body for the Son. The Son came to do the Father's will. 
and that it was written by the father of old. We see that Jesus' death, along with his life, and, and especially his resurrection, is unlike anything that has ever happened and ever occurred in man or beast. And this is so important for us to get because it again shows us the depth of our sin while also showing us the depth of God's love for us and His desire to win us and to claim us and to give us forgiveness. It shows that God was not fretting what to do with our sin, rebellion, and brokenness, but that He has a means of giving us forgiveness and giving us salvation. And we see that highlighted here. The Father prepared. The Father's will. We are told that the Son that the plan of the Son coming in the flesh originated in the eternal purpose of the Father. And as we read throughout the Gospels, we find that the Son was carried along to this end by none other than the Holy Spirit Himself. And do you see that all wrapped up here? That it was the triune agenda of the God to grant forgiveness to sinners through the life and death of Jesus Christ. But apart from being the will of the Father, I also don't want you to miss the supreme obedience of the Son. His supreme obedience. Look back at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, the eye there is Jesus. I mentioned that a moment ago. And the author is giving him these words. Jesus says, Behold, literally, here I am. I have come to do your will. Which brings us to this contrast he draws out in verses 8 and 9. Look at them again. When he said above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So what are the two things here that he's drawing out in contrast and comparing to each other to show their differences? Well, it isn't that the old covenant has animals and the new covenant has humans. That's, that's not what he's saying here. And what is it? It's what makes Christ so distinct. That He and He alone willingly went to death to be killed, to give Himself up knowing the very will, the very mind, the very heart of God. And do you see that here? Consider it. None of the animals knew the mind of God. That those animals that were led to the slaughter were silent. But their silence was a silence of ignorance. They had no idea where they were going and no idea why they were going. And yet Christ, His silence is a silence of humility and a silence of obedience because Christ knew the very will of God, the very heart of God, the very purposes of God. That Christ, oh Christ, is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But this lamb he knew. He knew the eternal plan of the Father. He knew the glorious mind of God. He knew the very heart of what it would take to accomplish redemption and forgiveness. He knew what it would take to bring sinners, just like us, back to the bosom of a holy and just God. He was able. He was willing. He was obedient. Friends, the glory of what we see here in Jesus taking up Psalm 40 is His willingness and ability to come. 
See, there's a difference, and parents, you know this, there's a difference in obeying begrudgingly and obeying in delightful trust. And this is what God has always desired from His people, that we obey Him with eager expectation, following His will and delightful trust. But friends, we have failed miserably, haven't we? We failed even this morning. Yet this is exactly what our Savior Jesus did for us in His coming. Just consider this. Consider the first recorded words of Jesus. You remember Mary and Joseph, they, they lose Jesus in, in the caravan coming back, and they can't find Him, and they search for Him, search for Him. Finally, they find Him there in the temple, and, and they confront the, the, this Jesus, this young man. Hey, where were you? What, what are you doing? And what does Jesus say to him? His first recorded words as a young man, what does He say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or consider right before his arrest in the garden when his disciple Peter pulls out his sword to go to town on these men who would come to arrest Christ. What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? We find from the start to the finish that it is the dearest desire of Jesus to fulfill the will of His Father, to accomplish all that the Father has sent Him in the world to do. So what is it that He actually accomplished then? Well, verse 9 tells us that one great act of obedience, Jesus destroys the Old Covenant. You see that there. Literally, the word for, in the Greek for does away with, in verse 9, it's the word for kill, to slaughter. That Jesus in His coming and in His dying literally slaughters the Old Covenant. By being the, the sacrificial lamb, He kills all that has come before. And by His death, He puts to death all of the old and establishes the new. And that's why verse 10 gives us that great result. And by that, the establishing of this new covenant, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that use of the word sanctified is not how we're used to using it. It's a, it's a term we tend to throw around from time to time. It, sanctification, Paul uses it often in this way, this idea of, of becoming more holy. The, the longer we follow Christ, we begin to look more and more like Him and grow in maturity. That's what we normally mean by sanctification, but that's not what he means here. He means it in a different sense. He means that by Christ's offering, we have been cleansed. We have been purified. Literally, we could translate it, we have been made saints. We have been sanctified. He says this is what Jesus has come to do. He alone is the one who can achieve forgiveness, who can secure redemption. But friends, what confidence do you have in this sacrificial work? What confidence do you have in it? What assurance do you have in it? What leaning do you do into the finished work of Christ upon the cross? Do you, do you live your life in light of it, inside of it, trusting it, growing into it, believing it, loving it, knowing about it? Hebrews will answer that question by showing us how it was achieved, by showing us the very work that Christ took up to achieve something no Old Covenant sacrifice could ever do. Let's turn then to the third section and consider verses 11 through 14, where he answers the question of how is forgiveness achieved? 
And the text shows us this by holding out three differences, three contrasts, three different majestic ways that you and they can put their full trust in Jesus Christ as the very one who can bring forgiveness for your sins. Let me read the verses again. And as I do, look for the ways that Jesus is contrasted here with the Old Covenant. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what are they? Well, the first contrast that we have here is a contrast of time. Did you catch it? He says that the old covenant priests stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly their ministry was never ending. It's worth noting here that the verbs that he uses, this verb stand and, and this verb offering, he uses them in the present tense. And he's not just saying that, oh, they're still doing this while I'm writing this letter. No, he uses them so that he can draw out the contrast of what he's about to say about Christ. Daily, repeatedly, they're standing, they're offering, they're standing, they're offering every single day. Every morning, every evening, year after year, the priests never ceased working. Dozens of people showing up every moment with new sacrifices to be offered in this unending stream of blood. It was never ending. But now, what has Christ done? But when Christ had offered, past tense, for all time, a single sacrifice. This phrase for all time or, or once for all, he used it just back in verse 10, is one of the favorite phrases in the book of Hebrews. It occurs some eight times, showing us one of the central themes of the entire book, that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, that his sacrifice of himself is sufficient as a one-time deal. It is it. There is no more. He will not come again to die for sins. His blood was superior because His life was without blemish. His death was our death because He was made a man like us. And His great cries of sorrow upon the cross were our great cries of sorrow because He was bearing the sins of all of His people laid upon Him. But there's not just a contrast in the one-time sacrifice, but a, a contrast in posture. Did you notice that? Look back at the text again. And every priest stands daily at his service. That little phrase there is not there by accident. You know, what's more, that word stands is not there by accident either. Some of you might remember when we were in Hebrews last year, we spent an entire sermon looking at the tabernacle and all of the furniture that is placed there. You'll remember that. They go in and there's all of the stuff that you find in the tabernacle. You find the table with the bread of presence. You find the golden lampstand. You find the altar of incense. You find the veil. You go through the veil. There, there is the, 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 uh, the Ark of the Covenant. That's what I was looking for. The Ark of the Covenant's there. But have you ever noticed what's missing in the tabernacle? There's no chair. There's no bench. There's not even a stool there. There's not even a leaning post for them to lean against. What does this signify? It signifies that, that the priest had no place for rest. It means that their work was never done. They were never resting. But were always working, always serving, standing before the Lord. 
You might have noticed that phrase from earlier in the service in our public scripture reading from Leviticus 1.3. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. That phrase, before the Lord, it occurs some 65 times in the book of Leviticus. Before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord. And it's this phrase of standing. It is this phrase of being presented, of being upright and working unto Him. And yet, what do we have in Christ here? What do we find in Him? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He what? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from the time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. When Christ had offered once for all sacrifice, was it enough? How can we know? He sat down. He sat down. He is at rest. He is waiting. Friends, this is the glories of the gospel on full display. This is the completeness of His achievement in beautiful color. It opens for us this final contrast in these verses. See there in verse 12, when it begins, but when Christ... The translators, they make an interpretive decision, at least there in the English Standard Version, that doesn't really draw out the full beauty of the text. Literally in the Greek it would be translated, but when this one, this one had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. The author of the Hebrews here calls him this one, contrasting him with the many priests that are mentioned before. And by many, I mean tens of thousands of priests throughout the Old Covenant. But then there's this one. We're shown here that He is the one and only one who can achieve forgiveness of our sins. There is one and only one who can bring us back to the Father. There is one and only one who can offer as a priestly sacrifice that was sufficient for all time. Friends, it is there at that sacrificial offering upon that Roman cross that God is satisfied and sinners are pardoned. This is the great beauty of the book. As he's laid out before in chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the glories of Christ, that He would all in one be the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of the world and the great high priest who would offer His very self Which brings us to that final section, which is more of a dangling point here in the sermon. I want to come back to it next week and explore it a little bit more, but at least want to read through it and give you what it is all about because it is built off of who Christ is for us. So far we've seen the plan of the Father. We've seen the work of the Son, but what of the Spirit? And what is this blessing of being forgiven that Christ begins in us? Because while the Son accomplished forgiveness of sins for all who repent and turn to Him there upon the cross, we find that it is the Holy Spirit Himself who applies that forgiveness through opening our eyes and giving us new hearts to believe. So the author of Hebrews says it this way in 15 through 18. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, quoting from Jeremiah, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, here's the important point, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Which brings me back to the real question that this text presents us today. Are your sins forgiven? Have you been forgiven? Have you found not just a nice religion where you get to come and hang out with people that you mostly like and do things that are mostly fun and try to be a better version of yourself? But have you been given a new life through having your sins forgiven? Are you certain of that? Or has your trust and confidence been misplaced in yourself, in your works, in your family? But what of those of you who are here who are young men and young women, boys and girls? You're not sinners in the same ways that your parents or your grandparents are. But you are sinners. Sinners before God. And so my question for you is, have you experienced God's forgiveness? Have you come to Him asking and pleading to be made new, to be changed? Perhaps He's at work in some of your hearts this very day, both adults and children. Perhaps, just perhaps, He's at work in the hearts of those of us who are Christians, exposing our need for ongoing repentance, pricking our hearts and our consciences where we know we are walking contrary to His Word. As we prepare to come to this table in just a moment, to take up this meal that is a picture of sacrifice we've thought about so much this morning, ask yourself these questions. Was the death of Christ upon the cross for me? Was His cries of pain and agony for my sin? Were the nails that pierced His hands supposed to pierce me? Was the very wrath of God that He drank up to the last drop the wrath of God that I deserve to bear. Friends, hear His word today and believe that forgiveness is a gift from God, not earned, not forced, and not achieved, but a gift, a gift of His grace and mercy. And it comes to us from one and only one explosive source, the very sacrifice, the very offering, the very death of Jesus Christ Himself. That's what this meal represents. That's what this coming together and sharing this meal represents. The bread is a picture of His body which stood in our place. The cup represents His blood that was given as the sacrifice, life for life, for all who would repent and come to Him. So friends, do you know His amazing love? Have you experienced His transforming grace? Have you been forgiven by the Father through the Spirit because of the Son? Where there is this kind of forgiveness, there is salvation and redemption and peace and joy everlasting. Let us pray. Father, we are not worthy in ourselves to come before you, but in Christ we can boldly approach your throne. 
So God, as we prepare to come now, taking this bread and drinking of this cup, we pray and we ask that you would do a work in us. God, if there are those who are here who do not know you, God, we pray and we ask that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would save them and grant them forgiveness of sins through Christ and Christ alone. As we eat and we drink, God, we pray and we ask that you would renew in us, refresh us, and nourish our very souls to delight in you. We ask this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.